0: Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories, with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring workday.
1: The balance of power, the safety of America, and the fate of the free world are all in the hands of a woman named Whoopi. Hi. You should be happy. The man's not going to press charges. This man is trying to kill me. Of course he's not going to press charges. She's discovered a deadly secret. You don't know anything about this, do you? I don't know about this. She's fallen in with a very tough crowd. Mr. Van Mee. What do you mean he's dead? Dead, dead? And if she can stay alive... Ah! See this face? Mm-hmm. It's a face of a woman on the edge. She just might save someone... Ah! The KGB? The KGB? ...named Jumpin' Jack Flash. Um. 20th Century Fox presents the star of the color purple in a dangerously funny new comedy, Whoopi Goldberg in Jumpin' Jack Flash. Ah Whoa! Get it! Get it! Get it!
0: Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie Jumpin' Jack Flash. Yes, a movie. Based on the song, kind of from 1986. The studio was 20th Century Fox, the release date was October 10th, 1986. The running time, 105 minutes, and it was rated R. The budget, 18 million, and the box office took in 29.8 million, making it the 34th ranked movie of 1986. Roger Ebert at the time gave it two out of four stars, and here's his review. Whoopi Goldberg is the only original or interesting thing about Jumpin' Jack Flash, and she tries, but she's not enough. They've harnessed her to an exhausted screenplay, an anthology of old ideas and worn-out cliches. And although she strains with all of her heart to pump energy into the movie, it's a lost cause. There's nothing to care about except for her, and even then there's a catch. Her character is so self-contained, so cut off from the other people in the movie, that even when she is generating energy, the rest of the characters hardly seem to notice. Her character lives alone, seems to have no real friends, and is treated by the screenplay at arm's length. This is a waste not only of talent, but also of warmth and charm. Despite everything, Goldberg survives this movie as a likable, interesting, warm, and infectious, funny person. There's so much to like about her. I thought she was wonderful in The Color Purple, but that movie is a different case and belongs in a different category. Jumpin' Jack Flash is simply a creative bankrupt package deal through which a lot of people will make money and Goldberg's career will receive a setback. Yet, I still liked her. She has that husky, warm voice filled with much humor and so many smarts. And she has life in her eyes and real pluck. Put her in a movie with a plot we could care about, and you'd have something. What surprised me about Jumpin' Jack Flash, which has no fewer than four screenplay writers, is that anybody was interested enough in the material to even write it in the first place. This is 1986. We've all been around. We've seen a few movies and a little TV. All of this spy business would be desperately uninteresting, even in a movie that was written and directed with competence. Under the shaky hand of director Penny Marshall, the story doesn't even achieve coherence. Maybe somebody thought that Goldberg's talent was so great that you could save this movie and even turn it into something. Maybe even Goldberg thought so. I've got news for her. An actor choosing a screenplay should just think like a chess master or a tennis player. You only get better by playing above your head. And that was the end of Ebert's review. So I do understand Ebert's point here. And in 1986, this type of film was a bit played out. However, watching the movie today, I find it somewhat refreshing, since Jumping Jack Flash isn't loaded with CGI, superheroes, and it isn't a remake. So I actually saw this on video when it was released back in the 80s, and it was a favorite of my mom's, and just as Ebert mentioned in the review, Whoopi is everything to this movie, and I find her a delight to watch. However, as we will discuss a bit later, there is also a great supporting cast you likely forgot about if you haven't seen this in a while. Alright, let's get into the making of the film. So if you're a younger listener and only know Whoopi Goldberg from The View, you're missing out because her stand-up act along with her films from the 1980s and 90s were terrific. And I give her kudos for still being relevant and having a career almost 40 years after she started. But for me, The View is unwatchable. It's not her fault, it's the show as a whole. So Whoopi's birth name, if you didn't know, is Karen Johnson. Once she became a performer, she took on the stage name of Whoopi after, yes, a Whoopi cushion. She was quoted as saying about this, when you're performing on stage, you really never have time to go to the bathroom and close the door. So if you get a little gassy, you've got to let it go. So people used to say to me, you're like a whoopee cushion. And that's where the name came from. So in the early 80s, she had a one-woman show, which involved different characters she created. Writer and director Mike Nichols saw one of her performances and became a mentor for her and later helped turn her act into a Broadway show. Her film break came a year prior to Jumpin' Jack Flash in the acclaimed film The Color Purple, which was directed by Steven Spielberg. She was even nominated for Best Actress, but lost to Geraldine Page for the movie The Trip to Bountiful. As for Penny Marshall, I discussed her early career in the big episode, which was the film starring Tom Hanks back in 1988. Jumpin' Jack Flash would be her directorial debut. Of course, Penny Marshall was best known for her TV work playing Laverne DeFazio in Laverne and Shirley. Whoopi Goldberg had already been cast for the film, though the film, very early on, was supposed to be a vehicle for Shelley Long. Also, the original director, Howard Zeef, and his crew had been fired, so Marshall was brought in and given a shot to direct. Luckily, she had tons of contacts from being in the TV business for years, and brought in great players like Carol Kane and John Lovitz, Phil Hartman, and Jim Belushi. Ironically, Lovitz had auditioned for the film when Zeef was the director and not hired. So Marshall was kind of learning on the fly, and she didn't know anything about pre-production. She was hired on a Friday and began shooting the next Monday. All she knew was TV directing, not movies, because she had directed four episodes of Laverne and Shirley. So Steven Spielberg gave her basic tips about how to make films. Okay, let's get into the film. So it opens with an overview of Terry Doolittle's Manhattan Apartment. That's, of course, Whoopi Goldberg. She's got tons of great memorabilia, like a movie poster of the 1927 film Metropolis, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, The Maltese Falcon, Casablanca, and various mystery novels strewn throughout her apartment. Terry then wakes up. It's a very cold morning, and the song Set Me Free by the Pointer Sisters plays. They were very popular in 80s films. In this little montage, we see Terry, which is simply an extension to how we would think Whoopi be would be like at the time, and her morning rituals getting ready for work. She catches her bus, and the guy next to her falls asleep on her shoulder. Always good times in public transportation. Terry works at a large bank, assisting international customers with computer bank wire transfers. Terry is a happy-go-lucky type of person. She's quirky and friendly with everyone. Though her uptight boss named Mr. Page, played by Peter Michael Goetz, is never amused by her. Terry's desk neighbors are Cynthia, played by the always great Carol Kane, and Doug, played by John Lovitz. They have fun, amusing banter where they gossip and give each other a hard time before getting to work. Now, what I always enjoyed about this film when I first saw it as a kid was the computer technology. Much of the wire transferring and Terry's communication with her international clients was essentially like instant messaging over the internet, though it would be about 10 years before the internet truly became the World Wide Web. Another one of Terry's co-workers is this terrific character actor, Phil Hartman. He's the first to notice that Terry's computer is hooked up to some sort of Russian television feed and it breaks into her monitor from time to time specifically a Russian woman doing gymnastics which causes everyone to laugh and hover over Terry's workstation. Of course, the commotion also lands Terry in hot water with her boss. Though Terry is great at her job and is the most tech savvy in her office, She kind of gets reprimanded as the logs of her transactions made their way to Mr. Page's desk. He doesn't like that she has a fun rapport with the clients. For example, she was going to trade bootleg tapes with one client, so a Bruce Springsteen from Moth the Hoople, or exchange recipes, or certain steamy chats with Jean-Claude from France. Mr. Page essentially wants his employees to act like robots, and Terry simply wants to be human with the clients. After talking to her boss, Terry tries to play it straight with the clients, but then gets a random transmission at the end of her shift, which comes from an unknown source that just types, knock, knock. She responds with the standard who's there. The reply is, jumpin' jack flash. Terry replies with, it's a gas, 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 of course, mirroring the chorus from the classic Rolling Stones song. The person wants a chat and is not using the standard wire chat service that the bank normally connects to clients with. Terry asks for his code key in order to secure the transmission for them. The person sends a sort of riddle which says, sing with me and find the code key tomorrow at 7 p.m. The person has been also monitoring her chat and thanks Terry for the Yankee pot roast recipe she gave to another client. So Terry is single and lives alone. She returns back to her apartment after work and watches a classic black and white romance movie on television starring Charles Boyer. Terry can't sleep that night since the riddle given to her uh, by Jumpin' Jack Flash is still on her mind. So she decides to try to figure it out, which ends up being a very funny scene.
1: Shit. Alright, Jack. You win. Sing with me and find the key. Maybe it's in the lyrics of the song. Here's the Moth Gate This is it. The Rolling Stones. Can't no, none it the my hurricane. I'm I'm in a crossfire hurricane. hurricane. But, I'm the rain. but it's, it's alright all right now. Damn, Nick, that's the only thing anybody can say. But it's all all alright. Jumpin' Jack Flash is a gas, gas, gas. Jagger step on the replay. I was raised by two lesbians. By Two lesbians. Now wait, two lesbians. Come on, Nick. Fuck a duck. I was crowned. With spikes in my head. This has got some weird ass lyrics. I was drowned I was down in the I- today. Meg, Meg, speak English.
0: (laughs) So, as Terry tries to write down the lyrics by just listening, she's also dancing all over, but getting incredibly frustrated in the process. Like the lyrics, two lesbians, nah, (laughs) fuck a duck. (laughs) Ah, the days of cassettes, too. The next day, Terry buys a song tab book of Jumping Jack Flash, which includes the lyrics and notes and keys that the song was originally performed in. She decides to stay late at the office to figure out the code and tells her boss she's working overtime. He's a bit suspicious, but Terry puts on a hilarious act, literally begging for a promotion, and he gets flustered and lets her continue to work on the computer because he just wants to get away from her. (laughs) So now it's time to crack the code. So after Knock Knock comes, Terry tries a variety of different codes but to no avail like lyrical phrases crossfire toothless gas or Mick Jagger's love interests like Bianca Jerry and Marianne she knows it has to be stones related so she tries drugs lips tongue altamont none of these work and she's totally frustrated and ready to give up But then she gets an epiphany and types in B-flat, which is the key the song was written in. Much to her delight as the cleaning women stare at her in amusement as she dances around. What the code does is give Terry access to a secure chat outside of her bank chat restrictions. The person tells her that all transmission hard copies must be destroyed after each chat and she cannot give anyone the chat code. The person on the computer needs Terry to deliver a message to the British consulate. The message is a code which says dogs barking can't fly without an umbrella. Terry thinks it's nuts and that the person must be putting her on, but she decides to go to the consulate the next day with that message and meets with Jeremy Talbot, played by John Wood. She passes on the message to Talbot, but in a hilarious way, like it's a spy secret as she hides herself behind a plant, because that won't draw attention. Talbot has no idea what Terry is talking about, and says there's no such Department C that she claims exists, according to her chat friend. Terry figures there's been a joke at her expense and leaves the consulate. However, from afar, someone is following her and taking pictures of her. Terry goes back to work, and one of the employees that sits by her named Jackie just left on maternity leave, and she's replaced by a temp from another office named Marty, played by Stephen Collins. He makes pleasantries with everyone by handing out his card. Cynthia, who is always on the prowl for single men, is disappointed to find out he's married with kids. That night, Terry connects with her chat friend. Terry explains what happened when she met Jeremy Talbot. She finds out that her chat buddy is trapped in Eastern Europe and needs an exit. And it turns out that he is British intelligence. We can sort of assume it's a male since Terry keeps calling him Jack. In any case, Jack says Terry needs to go to his apartment in New York and pick up a frying pan. <laughs> it just gets weirder and weirder. Suddenly, a computer tech comes into the office, played by Jim Belushin, to repair Terry's terminal. Terry doesn't want the guy to touch her computer, so she says she's going to call the company Belushi is supposed to be from. However, when she asks the guy his name, he has left and nowhere to be found, which is obviously very suspicious and creepy. Terry then goes to Jack's apartment to pick up the frying pan. The spare key is in the fire hydrant outside of the building, as he mentioned. The apartment is very nice, and while she's there, the phone rings and his answering machine picks up, so we get to hear Jack's voice as the message greeting plays. Terry likes his British accent and decides to listen to the messages he hasn't heard yet. While Terry is looking around, she notices that the front door she initially left open slowly closes. She freaks out and looks for the frying pan she was supposed to retrieve. When she goes to the front door after getting the pan, a Polaroid picture of her in the apartment is attached to the front door. Terry leaves in a panic and hurriedly gets into a taxi that was waiting for her. However, the driver isn't the same. It's actually Jim Belushi, the supposed computer repairman, and he pulls a gun on her. Terry does some quick thinking and when he starts to drive away, she pulls out the frying pan and smacks him on the side of the head and, and then jumps out of the cab. Bushi ends up crashing into a bunch of parked cars, and Terry runs away. When Terry returns to her apartment, she cleans the bottom of the pan with soap which reveals four names, and phone numbers etched into the pan. The names are Harry Carlson, Archer Lincoln, Peter Kane, and Mark Van Meter. Terry first calls Peter Kane, but only gets his answering in the service and leaves a message with them. Next, she calls Mark Van Meter, who is played by Jaron Crabb, who was in The Fugitive and many other films and he asks to meet with her that night as he's flying out of the country the next day. The meeting place is at the docks at 1.30 in the morning, which isn't a safe place to be for anyone. Van Meter is incredulous when he discovers that Terry isn't an undercover agent, but a civilian. Terry explains what she's been through up to that point and gives him the dogs barking can't fly without an umbrella message from Jack. Now Van Meter understands the message and knows they're in danger. They quickly try to leave the docks, and then Van Meter pushes Terry into the river before he is shot and killed by an unknown man. Terry ends up at the police station, and they just don't believe her story. And Terry lets loose on the detective at the station as Marty tries to help her.
1: Tell me again. If you stop picking your teeth. You could hear what I had to say. Gotta what are you gotta get doing them here? Back? What happened? I told him not to call anybody. They fished your card out of my pocket. You're wet. Really, Marty? God, you're so perceptive. You know her? I work with her. She nuts. We found her screaming, soaking wet, waving down cars near Battery Park. What happened? fell in the river. I told you, I didn't fall in the river. I was thrown. By well, your pimp, your John. What is it with you people? Every time you see a black woman, it has to be a pimp or a John? What do you think? There's a lot of work down on the pier for hookers? You think I'm giving blowjobs down there to goldfish? Is she on some kind of medication? Not that I know of. Are you on some kind of medication? Marty! You know, you can talk directly to me, asshole. Watch your mouth. It's a dead man floating around in the river. I think it's time to go home now. We sent a car down there, lady. Look who I'm calling lady. We found nothing, 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 Ooh. nothing. Well, drag the river. There are killers running around the fucking city. How would you like me to wash your mouth out with a wire brush? How'd you like if I kick you in the nuts so hard that they get lodged in your fucking nostrils?
0: My, that's a vivid image, isn't it? Um, Officer, look, here's
1: my card. Uh, I'll be responsible for her. I promise you that. Come on. You better get her to some doctor. There's nothing wrong with me. You dumb motherfucker. I told you. That's the oh, word oh, I know. Like.
0: Rosie, no, for sir, the sir, sir it's, it's Tourette syndrome. It's a piece. It's an illness. People can't stop swearing. They don't even know they're doing it. She has it bad. usually spits. Really, this is sweet talk for her.
1: It's Tourette's
0: syndrome. Look up, Tourette's
1: syndrome.
0: The next day, Terry scours the paper for any news about the shooting. Marty finds the news in the obituary column. Terry decides to attend Van Meter's funeral. At the graveside, she stands next to none other than Jeremy Talbot. Talbot makes pleasantries, but leaves before Terry can talk to him. However, a woman at the funeral seeks out Terry, and her name is Liz Carlson, played by Annie Potts. She's the wife of Harry Carlson, who was one of the contacts on the frying pan. Also attending the funeral was Archer Lincoln, played by Roscoe Lee Brown, who knows of Terry, but doesn't stop to chat with her either. Terry goes to Liz's house to find out some more about Jack. Liz seems to think it's the KGB involved in trying to obtain Jack's code. That night, Terry contacts Jack again on the chat, and we can now hear his voice from the chat. It's like the first version of voice type. Jack asks for another favor. He wants her to go back to the British consulate and hack into the computer to obtain more contacts. We also come to discover that Jack thought Terry was a man, and he asks if she has a dinner jacket. So because Terry is an ambiguous name, he didn't realize it was short for Teresa. Terry replies, she'll have to wear a dress, not a dinner jacket. So now Jack decides the mission is too dangerous for a woman and says he will need to find another contact. This just pisses off Terry and lets him know it. Jack apologizes and she accepts the mission. Jack tells her not to stand out, but that ends up being impossible when she ends up borrowing a flashy blue dress from Cynthia, and she also dons a Diana Ross circa the Supremes era wig. It's quite the look
1: it's going to be like this, I'd really like to go home now. We're not going home i really like to go home now. i really like to go home right easy. now. Your invitation, please. I don't have one. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, but we can't let you in without an invitation. You look awfully familiar. Oh, it's because I'm the entertainment. <laughs> On, uh... Need love
0: Terry has a cassette recorder on her with obviously a tremendous speaker output attached to her dress as she lip syncs you can't Hurry love. By the way, the man who was impressed with her was Michael McKeon and his date, Tracy Ullman. You know, it's really a great cast, right? So fun fact, Tracy Ullman was pregnant at the time of the shoot. So Terry gets in, which happens to be the Queen's anniversary ball. Fortunately for Terry, Liz is also at the party and she vouches for Terry as her cousin by marriage. Terry also meets Lady Sarah, played by Sarah Botsford, whom she recognizes because Jack had a photo of her in the apartment. Liz tells Terry that Sarah and Jack dated a few years back before Sarah married a lord. Terry needs to get to the third floor so she can get into the computer system. However, she runs into Talbot, who makes her dance with him. Terry ends up getting out of it when Liz decides to cut in. Terry does manage to get into the main computer room, though she has a few close calls like evading security and then getting her dress caught in the paper shredder, which turns it into a mini dress. However, she does hook up the device to the main computer for remote access and leaves without being noticed by Talbot. When Terry returns to her apartment, she notices that her door is slightly open. Her place has been trashed. She thinks one of the intruders has returned and hits him with a tennis racket. However, it's just Marty who was checking up on Terry after he promised the police to check up on her after the river incident. The next night, by using the device planted into the console computer, Terry is able to get into the database. Unfortunately, unbeknownst to Jack and Terry, Talbot turned off the transmission before they could get Jack's contact. Now, Jack wants to end things before Terry puts herself in further danger. But Terry won't give up, and she agrees to continue to help Jack. She first stops at Liz's house and finds it completely empty. When she leaves, the taxi is gone, and instead the car of Archer Lincoln is there. Archer explains what's going on. So Archer is with the CIA, as is Jack. Liz has been moved to a different location, and her husband is dead. Archer basically says that Jack is a pawn in this game that is going on and says Terry needs to stop trying to help Jack, or she may not be around much longer. All right, there's about 30 minutes left and plenty of action and comedy left, and questions to be answered. Will Terry be able to help Jack, or is he going to be killed like the rest? You will find out all of this and more. This has always been my favorite Whoopi Goldberg film, and she's truly a joy to watch throughout. The film is funny, and there's plenty of action. She definitely carries the film well, and the cast is terrific. Also, the ending has some nice twists that are very enjoyable. So if you missed out on this 80s gem, I think you should check it out. Plus, you get Aretha Franklin's cover of the Rolling Stones classic Jumpin' Jack Flash during the end credits. You also hear the great song Misled by Coolin' the Gang, which is one of my favorite songs from them. It's on the soundtrack, but I don't remember if it's in the movie or not. This happens a lot where you might have a song that's on the soundtrack, but maybe only briefly in the film. So next time you watch the movie, look for Misled. Okay, some fun facts. Adding to the classic rock theme running throughout the movie, Terry's boss's name is James Page. Of course, that would be like Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin. Burt Reynolds was the original choice for director, but he had a falling out with the producer, Joel Silver, and left the project. This is Penny Marshall's only R-rated film. And frankly, the R-rating is likely only because of the language, because there is no sex or nudity in the film. Jumpin' Jack Flash, the movie was originally called Knock Knock. Again, is this movie as good as The Color Purple? No way. (laughs) But, you know, I think this is probably her most enjoyable movie, though some people like Sister Act. That was a fun movie, and she was great in Ghost. But I think this is one of the more fun movies and kind of a forgotten gem. And I'll be back next week to talk about yet another random movie from my DVD collection. Chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat, Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.